Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. How's it going? Uh, it's, it's, it's going. <laughs> time <laughs> keeps ticking. Oh, How about you? <laughs> Lord. Yeah, time keeps ticking, and it's definitely just one foot in front of the other right now, which I think a lot of people can relate to. My husband woke me up this morning and said, another day on the merry-go-round. <laughs> Except like, merry-go-round's fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. It does make you nauseous after a while, though. That's true. It does lose its its joy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some days are better than others, and I'm just trying to have as much compassion as I can toward myself and other people. And I don't know about you, but I've been feeling pretty helpless mm-hmm. about all the suffering in the world. And I think something that I've found that's helped a little bit is just try to do small things for other people as often as I can, as much as I can. And that helps, but you know, it feels like just a drop in the bucket. How about yeah. you? I feel like every day has good hours and bad hours. I don't even know if I would say days are bad or good, but um, right now I would say this is not such a great hour (laughs) that I'm Mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're actually recording on Good Friday and that feels, that feels pretty appropriate because I'm definitely feeling some despair over this Groundhog's Day experience that we've been enjoying for nearly a month. It's like one long, terrible day. Um, And I've actually started in my journal that I write in daily, even just a few lines to mark what day it is so that I can remember how many days we've been doing the self-quarantining. And I think the day that we're recording, it's it's day 28. So we're at four weeks. So yeah. this is like the novelty, if there ever was any, has completely worn off. And it's just mm-hmm. the grind of <laughs> the, having the same day over and over again. Well, we do have one little bright spot in the midst of this. I, I don't know if our listeners have noticed, but we have a new logo. Yay! Yay! It's so pretty. I love it so much. And I want to shout out the incredibly talented graphic designer, Morgan Lynette, who designed our logo. Uh, it's on our website. It's our podcast cover. And also we've got some Instagram graphics as well. She did all of that. She's also a longtime listener. You can follow Morgan on Instagram. Her username, I don't know what they're called. Is it username on Instagram? Handle? (laughs) I don't know. Okay, boomer. (laughs) It's at Morglin, M-O-R-G-L-I-N-N underscore. And her website is morganlinette.com. Her last name is L-I-N-N-E-T-T. And some awesome news, she is actually taking on new clients right now. So if you've got some graphic art needs, please reach out to her on social or through her website, or you can contact us and we can put you in touch with her as well. She is an absolute joy to work with, and she can do all kinds of digital and print design. So seriously, y'all should definitely connect with her. Yeah. And I know you are mostly the one communicating with her, but she was so great about kind of taking our feedback and incorporating in different elements from different designs that we really liked and got back to us really, really quickly. So yes. I'm I'm so thrilled with what we have and it really reflects um, kind of who we are in a way that our Canva created design that I made like five minutes <laughs> in 2016 just 
didn't quite do it. So yeah. we're so glad to have that. It's a little sparkle of joy mm-hmm. in the midst of a really dark time. So as you mentioned, we have this great new Instagram account. We would love to have you follow us over there. You can find us on Instagram at Kindred's Podcast, and we'll make sure to follow you back too. So you can keep up with what we're doing. We've been reposting some things that have been inspiring mm-hmm. us you know, throughout these dark times. Um, and also just sharing a little bit about our lives behind the scenes. So we would love to have you follow us over there. Um, so today we're going to talk about productivity. And I feel like mm. we're going to talk about productivity in a very different kind of way than we would have a month or six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Because for sure, it has really, really changed. I think at least my thoughts, I'm sure yours too, have shifted so much in light of this global pandemic that we're in um, and how it's shifted the way that we work and live our lives. Um, So I know that you and I are both really hard workers, um, Mm -hmm. but I would say we have different relationships with productivity. Maybe you'll disagree, but I'm just curious about how you think about productivity and what place does it have in your life right now, but also what role has it played in your life in the past? I love this question. It's been making me think a lot. You might define productivity differently, but thinking about my life, I was trying to give it a little bit of a definition, like what do I think productivity is? And I think I equate productivity with external measures of success. Like if someone else can look at how I'm spending my time and quantify it somehow, then I'm being productive. I guess there's been various times in my life where I've been really deep into a productivity mindset and If I'm being honest with myself, when I'm in that mindset, what I'm really craving is external validation. So I've been thinking this over a lot and I can best describe my relationship with this productivity mindset as one of ebb and flow. I think I had my first experience with resisting the productivity hamster wheel when I graduated high school. And I don't know if this was true for you, but I was a major overachiever throughout childhood, especially during high school, especially the closer I got to graduation. And academic success was just a huge part of my identity. I was voted most likely to succeed. I think you were too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just remember distinctly that when it came time to register for college classes, I just had this moment where I was fully done, just completely burned out. And so I signed up for the lightest course load possible, which was completely out of character for me. And I resisted the pressure to enroll in the honors college. And I just went to college and had fun and tried to go easy on myself. And I think some of that was reacting to my Mom got divorced my senior year of high school and started a new relationship, and I just needed some time to process all of that. Mm. But I remember having to balance, like, I I knew what I needed to do for myself, but there was also a lot of shame around wanting to just pull back on the intensity of my life and get some distance from that overachieving identity I'd had. And people gave me a really hard time about some of my decisions, but it was just what I needed. And then over the course of the next few years, of course, I added more and more to my plate until it looked about the same as it had before. I was president of this club and that club and graduating with honors and then moved to Nashville and went to Vanderbilt. And so what 
this has made me think about is I can look back over my life and see this cyclical pattern where when I take it in as a whole, I can see a few major transitions where I went from being this like super productive, overachieving, top of her game person to just like wiping the slate totally clean. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but getting laid off and divorced at the same time was another transition that played out like that. And so I can just see this pattern emerging. And I wonder if you can relate to any of that or if it's different for you. What do you think? I love how you describe that cyclical pattern that you can look back and identify. And I feel like maybe you recognize burnout much earlier in your life than I did, because I feel like my relationship with productivity has been very linear And like an upward climb and just ready to crash. And probably the crashes have been more severe because Mm -hmm. they happen so much later after so much buildup. So yeah, my relationship with productivity is very intense, I would say. (laughs) And um, in general, I'm an over-functioner under stress. So that means when stress happens, I just look to fill my time and I like... Mm take everything on myself. And so that is my natural state of being when I feel like under pressure. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a coping strategy for me to just find things to do and to take on more. Um, it's really a distraction from my feelings if I think about it that way. So mm. I've let it define me a lot more than I'd like to. And it's something that I judge really harshly in myself, you know, how productive, how productive am I being? And I also judge other people, right? Like I look at other Mm. people and I'm like, why can't you do X, Y, Z when I'm able to do X, Y, Z under these sets of circumstances? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super judgmental about that. Sometimes we got to talk about the Enneagram. I don't know if you're into that, but it's definitely connected to me being an Enneagram one. But anyway, that's Hmm. a side note. So I feel like on a really basic level, I define productivity as achieving something outside of myself preferably in a very efficient way. Mm -hmm. So what that looks like for me is fitting in as much as I can in any given window of time. So if I have, let's say back in the day when I used to pick up my daughter from school, if I (laughs) (laughs) remember those days of picking up the child from daycare. So if I had 15 minutes left before I had to go pick her up, I'd like challenge myself to see how much I could accomplish in that time. Mm. Um, So it's like this sort of competition that I have against myself. And um, I sort of get like, a rise out of it. You know, there's a, there's an adrenaline rush that comes. Yeah. There's, a, there's a reward. And I feel like that got really kicked into high gear after my daughter was born for about three different reasons. One, I definitely had undiagnosed par- postpartum anxiety, which I did not know was a thing. It was never asked about. Mm-hmm. Two, I had a lot less time to get things accomplished. And three, I felt like I lost my sense of self. So getting things done seemed like a way to sort of regain control over a period of my life that I felt really out of control. So I feel like on an emotional level, productivity is about control for me. And I've shared uh, on this podcast before, and I said it in kind of a a joking way, but it's serious. Like I really feel like I am addicted to productivity. It's a major Mm -hmm. vice, but I feel like the problem with a vice like that is it gets reinforced by the culture as something good. Mm -hmm. So, and I know we're going to talk about that more, but it's like, it took me a long time to see it as a vice because of the external validation that I got for doing it. So unlike, let's say, like alcoholism or doing drugs, right? right? Like there was positive reinforcement for just running myself into the ground. So but I do think that in this moment, my relationship with productivity is shifting big time, big, Mm. big, big time. (laughs) So maybe this is my first like crash. (laughs) Maybe. Um, So I don't know if that resonates with you because I think that's a very different description 
of what you were talking about, but I'm wondering if you resonate with that sort of shifting and thinking about productivity right now. All it takes is a global pandemic to make <laughs> us examine our values, right? <laughs> yeah, I eventually got there. <laughs> you know, you said something a second ago that I just wanted to, you mentioned postpartum anxiety mm-hmm. and it not like not understanding that that was something that existed and that because nobody asked about it fully fully agree. I had the same experience. I knew about postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. I did not know about postpartum anxiety. So I did just want to say, yes, me too. <laughs> but as far as how my relationship with productivity might be shifting. So we've talked before about how 2019 was a tough year. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I'm sorry. It just seems so silly now. What? I know. <laughs> Oh my God, now I expect to laugh, but there's something about it just struck me. It's so funny right now. <laughs> I mean, we really did talk about like, it 2019 it was hard. being this and being this kind of like watershed year for us both professionally where we were like really pushed to the limit and we were stretched really thin. <laughs> All in preparation for this like catastrophic moment we're in. Oh my God. <laughs> right. So I think when I step back from this current crisis and I see what's happening now in the context of my life, but also in the context of last year with this year, I think I'm in another productivity transition. Mm. I'm thinking 2019 was the crest of the wave. And now life is just forcing me to pull back Mm. Mm -hmm. because on a daily level, I literally I do not have the same focus and intensity to be able to bring to my work as I have over the past five years or so. It is just not there. Yeah. That well is dry. Mm-hmm. And so it because I'm focusing so much on just getting through the day-to-day and surviving just this onslaught of everything coming at us day after day, I don't have anything left to give to that same productivity culture, that mindset that I was in. And I'm just trying to accept it and not beat myself up about it. And just like all those other transitions, it's scary and uncomfortable in the moment, but I'm trying to just fight the urge to keep myself busy just for its own sake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I really do get that. And I think even in the moments now when I get caught up in the trap of trying to be productive in one way or, or the other, I'm not getting the results that I typically oh, would. Interesting. So I'm like frustrated by that. And I'm like, oh yeah, maybe this is just not an optimal time to try to get anything accomplished. So yeah. Um, I think one of my major wake up calls in this moment has been having Sammy at home all the mm. time mm-hmm. because the space and the time that I used to have to be productive has been dramatically reduced, like 75 to 80%. I have Mm -hmm. no time. And now I'm starting to see this productivity obsessed behavior in other people that I've always had and known about myself, but I'm seeing it from a different angle because I see Mm. how people are doing exactly what you're saying. Like they're resorting to busyness as a distraction from the crisis around us. And I totally Mm -hmm. get it. And we do need a distraction. And that's what I typically do. But now that I'm on this other side of it, like someone who cannot be productive in these times because I have nearly full-time childcare responsibilities. Like I see how unhelpful it is because I'm on the receiving end of people trying to be productive and it's so frustrating. Oh, the like the 
nine o'clock p.m. emails. Yes, please stop. I know. <laughs> about non-urgent and unimportant things. I'm like, please Zoom meetings stop. that could have been an email. Oh, That my right now is what's killing me. It's like folks who didn't know about Zoom before have just discovered it for the first time. Ugh. And you and I have been, do- We've been doing this, this platform for years. For years. <laughs> this is not a novel thing for us. I do not want to be on Zoom at in in the evenings, like in my what would be my downtime, like but folks that are just you know excited to try out this new technology, and I'm just like, no, this is work. Being on Zoom is work. This is work. <laughs> yeah, this is work. Uh, that's not to say that I haven't enjoyed the time that I've been able to connect with friends long distance over video conferencing. I'm not discounting that at all, but there is something really difficult about sitting down and putting on my headphones and sitting at my computer yes. in order to be social. It's yeah. just, it's a hard mindset shift for me. And I don't know about this, but something I've been seeing on social media a lot lately, a lot lately, and I wonder if you and our listeners have seen it too, is this tension between messages and memes about productivity as a good thing like a, a positive way to get our minds off things versus the larger implications of the harm we're doing to our mental health and even what bigger systems we're perpetuating when we drown our feelings in work. Mm-hmm. For example, have you seen the meme about how Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the plague? Uh, <laughs> yes. Like we're all just supposed to use this time to write like the next great American novel or whatever. There's going to be a lot just, of those if we're all doing that. And it's they're all going to be about the same thing, y'all. <laughs> right. Like we don't have unique perspectives on this time. We're all feeling it. So, I read this so great article on Bitch Media called All the Ways the Internet is Pushing Hustle Culture that talks about that Shakespeare meme specifically and why it's more than just a silly meme. The article talks about hashtag hustle, hustle culture, grind culture. It's got a lot of names. But this idea that we should always be on and working and available to our jobs or our employers and just how harmful that can be. And I'm really feeling that now as the lines between like work and office have just been completely erased. And so... I think we really need to unpack the productivity mindset or like hustle culture. So Katie, I wonder what you think about this. What bigger systems might we be playing into when we participate in productivity thinking? Yeah, this is a good shift because I think it would be easy from the conversation that we've had to feel some shame or guilt about resorting to productivity or busyness right now. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's nobody's individual fault. Like, I just want to say that. And I mean, I called myself a productivity junkie. I totally understand it. And I think you and I are at a a better position because we've had to work on those boundaries as people who've worked from home for a long time. Yeah. And for some people, this is brand new. So, and we're yeah. in these really strange times. So like everyone, like it's okay, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's all good. Um, and understandable. Yeah. It's totally understandable, but it is, we're being fed this by something that was already existing. Before this moment happened, this mm-hmm. cultural fixation on productivity is deeply tied with supremacy culture. And um, we don't have a ton of time to get into exactly what that is. But just quickly, supremacy culture is the way that white supremacy thinking and norms and beliefs, things we've talked about before, how those things show up in the ways that we live and work and interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So we might not even know it's happening, but it's just all the assumptions that we make. And I'll talk about those in a second that impact the way that we think we're supposed to work. So Mm -hmm. I was reading this overview of white supremacy culture from 
the Dismantling Racism Workbook that's written by Kenneth Jones and Timo Okun. And so they talked specifically about how white supremacy culture shows up in our organization and workplaces, and it definitely still applies even as mm-hmm. many of us are working remotely. So um, there's a whole long list of characteristics they discuss, but I'm going to highlight the ones that apply specifically to productivity. So perfectionism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fear of making a mistake, a sense of urgency, quantity over quality, mm-hmm. either or thinking, individualism, and this one, progress is bigger and more. Mm-hmm. Ugh, those really, really hit me at a gut level because I, I feel them so much and I felt them really acutely the other day. I was on a Zoom call, of course, and frankly, nobody wanted to be on this call. And it wasn't mm. because of the call. It was just like everybody was sort of feeling we're in this fourth week of this self-quarantining and everyone's exhausted. And yeah. I sort of got thrust into facilitating this meeting, which was not something I was prepared for. That's fun. That was real fun. And so the whole time, what I was most worried about was that I was wasting people's time by not being mm. efficient and not mm-hmm. moving the conversation in a productive way forward. And that by not being perfect, I was going to lose trust in relationships with these people. Because this way of thinking says that we can be canceled if we aren't perceived as productive, if we aren't Hmm. perfect, if we aren't showing bigger and better results, even under these extreme circumstances. So Mm -hmm. I really like felt that in my body. And I mean, I felt so insecure about the time because I'm like, we're not hitting any of these white supremacy culture (laughs) checklist things. And if those are the assumptions we're all working under, like, what does it mean to work together right now? Um, So I'm wondering if that resonates with you. Like, have you seen that showing up in your work either in the past or right now as we're sort of navigating this new, this new normal? Mm -hmm. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) we both work in the nonprofit space and have for a long time. And I feel like white supremacy culture masquerading as productivity is all over the nonprofit space. And mm-hmm. I'm just as guilty of perpetuating this stuff as the next person. You know, I we've said this before, it's the water we swim in, right? But for instance, one of the values that you mentioned that really jumped out at me was quantity over quality. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has ever run a nonprofit or managed grant funds, you know we are always being asked to measure our impact, even things that are impossible to quantify. So we're reporting on things like the number of contacts made, the number of meetings held, the growth of our mailing list, when that is rarely even part of the whole picture of the work that we're actually doing and the impact we're actually having. But that's what the funders need to see to, to feel okay with us doing our work, you know, and let's be real. Most foundations and government entities are primarily white-led. It's those norms that are influencing how we report and thus how we do our work. And so it's just what we have to do. And there's also always an unrealistic deadline, like a one-year grant, you know, uh-huh. to change hearts and minds <laughs> for about like $5, an issue. <laughs> for $5,000, yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, something else, I think, the glorification of the written word. I mean, mm-hmm. how many pages and yes. pages of grant proposals and reports can we write? Yes. And I, I feel like I should disclaim, you know, hashtag not all funders, <laughs> of course. 
But these are still the norms of this sector. And even as some funders are starting to recognize and be more accountable for the ways they're perpetuating white supremacy, these are still the norms. I feel like I could go on about supremacy culture and productivity in the nonprofit world, but mm. I'll just point to a few resources if folks are it, kind of hearing about these concepts for the first time and would like to read more. Are you familiar with the website Nonprofit AF? Yes. <laughs> okay. So it's nonprofitaf.com. It's founded by Vu Lee. He has written tons of articles and is doing some great work around equity in the nonprofit space. And there's some articles specifically about how overwork is destroying the sector. There's also a Facebook group that you can join if you're in the nonprofit world and committing committed to doing things better. And uh, the whole website archive is great. I will link in the show notes to the website and this article I really like called How the Obsession with Data Hurts Marginalized Communities mm-hmm. as just an example for how like this quantity over quality mindset uh, can really put people at a disadvantage. And then we've talked about her on the podcast before, but Austin Channing Brown, her book, I'm Still Here, touches on what it's like to work as a black woman in white supremacy culture, even in so-called progressive spaces and faith spaces. So those are two authors you can look for uh, online if you just want to read some more about these ideas. Yes. And speaking of faith spaces, these mm-hmm. these messages of productivity show up in white church too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, growing up, there was such a discomfort with pleasure. And mm, honoring God yeah. meant doing a lot of stuff, you know. You're yeah. supposed to be doing like a lot of stuff. You're supposed to be praying. You're supposed to be reading the Bible and going to church and serving the community. So on the one hand, for me in evangelical spaces, there was this theology that was like, you're a piece of crap. That's why Jesus was murdered for you yep. to save your butt from hell. Um, and then yeah. there was nothing you could do about how terrible you were. And then on the other side of that, there was this notion that if you, um, you know, accepted Christ into your heart to save you. There should be the fruits of the spirit in your life. So it wasn't enough to accept that one, you're a horrible human being who killed Jesus, basically. But you mm-hmm. also needed to try to try your best to make up for that and be mm-hmm. in this constant state of gratitude for that by sacrificing pleasure and ignoring your desires and putting your needs last if you paid attention to them at all. So mm-hmm. in some ways, I think God was talked about as this like really mean boss. <laughs> Who knew better yes. than you and that you should be indebted to your boss for like granting you the privilege of working. Um, and I'll say this intentionally, the privilege of working for him, right? Like yeah. God is that like white bearded, angry dude in the sky, um, yeah. which is not at all how I think God actually is. I never call God him. But for the sake of this, like that really is the model. And I feel like there's a lot of troubling parallels between work culture and our theology. So yeah. when we talk about dismantling white supremacy culture, that includes dismantling the idea that God is white, male, and power obsessed, and that our worth as human beings is is simply rooted in having been created by God. Like, even if all we do is, like, breathe in, breathe out, like, that's it. We don't have to do anything else, um, which is really, really hard to apply when all the other messages that we're getting tell us that we have to just keep doing more and more in order to be good. I feel like we just need to, I want to say this again. I want to paraphrase something you just said that really stands out at me. You said dismantling white supremacy culture necessarily includes dismantling the idea of God as white, male, power-obsessed boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I just feel like that is something that we should probably really sit with. If we are uncomfortable thinking about God in terms that aren't just masculine, we are never going to be able to dismantle white supremacy culture in our in our faith spaces. And so I just really, I love that you said that. And what you described a minute ago about honoring God being tied to performing various acts of service or worship, that to me is capitalism's influence on the Christian church. Mm -hmm. That is all I can see because capitalism quantifies people, all of us, according to how much we produce or accomplish or create or sell And in a faith context, how often we pray or read the Bible, how many church committees we're on. Mm -hmm. But that is not what being human is about. And that is the danger of capitalism for me in a nutshell, that our worth is reduced to the dollar value we bring to society. And that contributes to the narrative that people who are poor or unable to work are therefore less valuable to society. And we don't have time to get into all of the different ways that this discourse is playing out in our country right now as folks are affected in different ways by the pandemic and inequities in the system are really coming to the surface right now, especially around racism and ableism. And all of that to me is linked to productivity, the way that capitalism values people in our society. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to work in order to live and provide for ourselves and our families. There is no question about that, but we don't have to use work or productivity as a measure of our worth. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we're playing into white supremacy culture and capitalism. And even though this might seem like a new perspective for us or for some of our listeners, there are folks who've been spreading this message and disrupting the productivity mindset for a while now. This is not new, right? So, Katie, are there any folks that stand out to you? Yes, I love following the nap ministry on Instagram. Yeah, so their tagline is rest as resistance. And um, this was founded in 2016 by Trisha Hersey, who's a performance artist, theater maker, and activist, theologian, and community healer, among other things. Mm -hmm. And they examine the liberating power of naps. I mean, how good is that? I know. I love it so much. So this post on Instagram hit me hard, and I'd be curious to to know what you think about it. Um, So it's a word from your nap, Bishop. I love that for one. (laughs) If I see that you don't have to be productive during a pandemic meme one more time, when in fact y'all love the grind and uphold it for dear life because you refuse to heal your trauma and instead Mm -hmm. feel like retweeting memes is actually the hard work of truly healing. Time is up on the shenanigans. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's so true because I do love the grind and I do uphold it for dear life because I am, I am scared <laughs> to heal my trauma. <laughs> like we're making a podcast episode about productivity. Like we're making, yeah. we're making a thing about the thing about making a thing. I don't know. It just feels very that was like <laughs> not lost on me either as we were writing this outline about productivity. I was like, I wonder if if it would be more powerful for us to just not make any record during this pandemic. I yeah, like but, it's it's hard because I feel like it's helped me process yes where I am. Mm-hmm. And that's why I mean, yes, it's putting something out there and it did require work. But I, I will say for me it's really helped me like see the nuances of what I've been feeling and articulating it and hopefully other people 
resonate with it, but it also is like creating a thing. And so yeah. I'm going to sit with this one for a while and we'll put it up on our Instagram um, stories too, because it's just, yeah, it's like, what is the distraction of busyness all about really? And if we're on social media, just retweeting or reposting stuff about not doing a thing is a thing. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. so hard. There's so many layers to untangle, but I really think the nap ministry is prophetic in terms of leading mm-hmm. the way and like helping us mirror, like see ourselves in a mirror and go, Oh yeah, I'm still doing that thing. And I can go lay down and take a nap. So <laughs> it's yeah. real, real good. And I'm, I'm a big fan of napping. I've definitely been doing that now during this time when I can. Good. Yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what we're reading and listening to. Um, I don't yes. know if you have had more or less time for either of those things, but I would love to, um, love to talk That's about a good question. it. I think I'm up first. So I've been reading and listening to a lot and I've definitely been doing kind of a mix of really immersive fiction and then Mm -hmm. just stuff that's helping me get through all of the feelings that are coming up. So one of the things I've been turning to for guidance and comfort is Brene Brown's new podcast, Unlocking Us. It's so good. It's real, really good. I've I've read all of her books. Like I'm a big fan of her self-help brand um, that centers around vulnerability and showing up imperfectly and dealing with our shame. Mm -hmm. And her podcast is the same. It's this mix of reflections from Brene about how to move through this particular moment that we're in, kind of her looking at experiences that she's had in the past. I especially loved her very first episode on FFTs. Me too. So good. Which I can't repeat what it means, but it's about giving ourselves permission to just get a little out of sorts when we're having a brand new experience for the first Mm -hmm. time. Like it can be good or bad or neutral. It's like when we're doing something for the first time, it's not going to feel great. Um, so I really appreciated that. And she's also interviewed amazing people like Toronto Burke, the founder of me too, David Kessler, who writes about grief and Glennon Doyle. I know you're going to talk about Glennon in a second, Yes, but the interview that she does with Brene is so good. It is great. Yeah. And, and Brene does this a lot. She's like, stop, say it again. Right. Cause she, like these profound moments come up. She's like, no, I need you to stop and say it again. So it can really mm-hmm. sink in. So these conversations have been breathing life into me at a time when I really need it most. So go check out Unlocking Us by Brene Brown. You know, the other episode I really liked was the one about the 50-50 myth. Did you listen to that one about family? Was that the comparative suffering one? Yes. yes. So there was, mm-hmm, she talks about comparative suffering and then she gets oh, into like yes. relationships and how they're not really 50-50. They're yes. really more like today I'm 10 and you're 90 and right. tomorrow I'm 60 and you're 40. Yes, and, like, that was just so good. How to communicate when your tank is empty and you need what you need from the rest of your family yeah. to kind of just get through it. And when and you're both I, on uh, empty, that was what she was talking about. Both. Like you can't meet mm-hmm. the gap, right? Like when you're both yep. just so stressed, what do you do when you're like one person's out of 20 and one person's out of 20? It doesn't add up to 100. Exactly. Yeah. And have a plan to yeah. make a family plan about what to do in that case. I just found that so practical and mm-hmm. like implementable, mm-hmm. you know, because some, I will say some of the just feelings exploration happening right now on Instagram and podcasts and stuff is it's helpful to me up to a point, but then I do start to feel myself really swallowed up in my feelings and I need to kind of move out of that. And my husband actually asked me to move out of that a little more to, so that I could be a little more 
like present and engaged <laughs> and to not just be swimming in my feelings. And there's there's a lot of validity. Well, we to are that cancers, request. you and I. We're both cancers. We, so yes, we love our we're feels. Cancers. <laughs> I know we do love our feels. <laughs> so um, I do love that practical, um, actionable stuff too. But the episode you mentioned about Glennon Doyle was so good. And that leads me to talking about what I've been reading and listening to. And that is Glennon Doyle's new book, Untamed. I am unabashedly on the Untamed bandwagon. If y'all are on social media, you've seen it. I feel like everybody (laughs) is posting pictures of this book on Instagram. It is very pretty. I so right when stores started closing when the pandemic was announced and stores in Biloxi started closing our local bookstore it's such a gem in our area but it is I mean it's a local independent bookshop and they're part of a platform called bookshop.org it's like Amazon you can get any book you want and part of the proceeds go to the local independent bookstore that you designate and it takes a you know you don't get it in two days or whatever and you have to pay shipping and all of that but it's it's a lot more fair than Amazon in terms terms of pricing and how much publishers and authors are getting paid. So anyway, I bought this book. It took a while to get in the mail because it was back ordered and all of that. But when I got it, I was so excited. I have read other things by Glennon. Uh, She's got two other memoirs and this is her third. She's had a really interesting journey and I love her style of truth telling in her writing. I read her second book, Love Warrior, about struggles in her marriage on a flight a few years ago and I remember distinctly like tearing up as I was reading it and hoping that the people next to me didn't notice that I was like sniffling and reading. I don't know if you've ever done that on a plane. Yeah, definitely (laughs) cried on planes from books I've read. Yes. Yeah. But her writing is really honest and direct and just full of compassion and kindness. And even though Untamed is a memoir, but it's a lot more than that, it's an exploration of what it means to find and listen to and follow your inner voice, even when what your inner voice is telling you might go against everything you've been raised and conditioned to believe about yourself and the world. And you know we are all about that here on Kindreds. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I think the timing of this book is really interesting because it's all about how our individual liberation is tied to our collective liberation. So if it's at the top of the bestseller list right now and it's all over Instagram, that means a lot of people are reading this during their quarantine. So as soon as quarantine is lifted – I better see people like getting going with our collective liberation, right? (laughs) Yes. I'm so excited to read this book. So I also ordered it through our local bookstore and I just got my copy yesterday and this is the best part. I did not know this when I ordered it, but I got a signed copy. (gasps) No way. I was like, this is so, this is such a wonderful surprise. Oh, that's lovely. (laughs) You don't get that on Amazon. (laughs) No, you really do not. (laughs) So, Katie, you are up for our kindred of the moment. Yes, and this one's going to be a really tough one for me, but I really wanted to um, honor the memory of my friend and colleague Maeve Kennedy McCain and her son Gideon, who who died in a really tragic boating accident last week. Um, Mm. You probably read about her. She was Robert Kennedy's granddaughter. Um, She was a human rights lawyer, an advocate for global health, especially for women and children and folks Mm. living with HIV AIDS. But More than that, she was a friend to so many people. Um, I met Maeve in 2009 when I moved to D.C. We worked together um, at my first job, and 
she had this infectious laugh. Like it's one of those laughs that I haven't heard in probably like four or five years, but I can still remember. I don't know Mm. if you know people like that who just Mm -hmm. have that laugh that you can't help but join them in laughing. Mm -hmm. And I remember this is just classic Maeve to me. She was, um, she was in a wedding right after returning from Mozambique. She did two years in the Peace Corps. And she told me that she had done dreadlocks while she was there. And Maeve was white and had blonde hair. And she showed me this picture of being at like this huge bridal party with these like terrible dreadlocks and just laughing about it. And it, for me, that picture just symbolized like she was totally who she was. She was her own person. And she just brought so much light into the world. And my heart is really grieving for her family um, and her husband and their two other children. Um, and for the whole Kennedy family, that's just suffered just generationally so, so much tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side of that, I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to know her because she was mm-hmm. just one of those people that impacts everybody in this incredibly positive way. So I hope that the memory of her inspires me to continue doing this work of justice in a way that's both passionate and joy-filled and that I can learn to laugh at myself the way that she did. Mm, that was such a valuable lesson. Yeah, it's been it's been really hard. Like it's hard to experience tragedy at any time, but mm-hmm. to be experiencing tragedy like that in the midst of this collective grief is just something that I don't even know how to talk about yet. Um, it may never yeah. know how, but it's just it's strangely isolating to be grieving. And I know that you're, you're dealing with your own grief too. Um, so I don't know what to say about it other than it's just, it's just really hard. But if you want to learn more about Maeve, um, her husband wrote an amazing tribute to her that's public on Facebook. Um, and just read about her. Cause she was just a really inspiring person, amazing mother. Um, and just, a kick-ass woman, and I'm so glad I got to know her, and the world is a lot dimmer without her light in it. Hmm. Well, that is it for this episode, and I will be honest, we did not decide what we're going to record about next, and I feel like that's okay. We don't need to be perfect That's right, <laughs> right and, now in this moment. And who knows in a couple weeks what's going to be going on, but I really think we are like trying to listen to what we're dealing with and also Mm -hmm. what the world is dealing with. So we probably will create something in the near future. We just don't know what it is, but hang around. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Stay tuned. (laughs) Take care of yourselves. Yeah. Talk to you later, friends. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 